0: One of the things that I, uh, I like to do, um, well, I like to read about preaching. I always want to be a better preacher than I am, and I found this article, the, the leading question was, how long should a preacher preach? And I read it, and the answer was, for as long as you can keep interest. And I thought to myself, hey, that's pretty cool, I've got a great attention span. then I realized it's not my interest they're talking about. I can keep myself interested by myself for a very long time. Now, in 1978, The Who released an album called Who Are You? The, number, uh, the best song off of that album, from my opinion, is the song Who Are You? You all know the, the song. Unless you've not seen C-S-I, you know the song Who Are You? Who, who, who? Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> Love it. You know what I found out? Two weeks after they released that album, Keith Moon died. I didn't know that. That was the last album that the the original Who recorded and released. It's a great song, and it's a great song... To to have as a theme song for a show like CSI. CSI is trying to figure out the who done it, right? The, and, and the the who. I read that Pete Townsend wrote that song because he was getting to know uh, two other guys who were more like in the punk rock. Uh, and he he, by his own admission, spent a lot of time drinking with them. And he was just trying to understand who they were. Who are you? Ooh, 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 ooh. Identity is so key to who we are and how we live and what we do. In fact, a professor by the name of Adam Alter in a 2013 article uh, published this theory of a names-driven outcome. What you are named can drive how you spend your life, your occupation, what you end up doing. Basically, his theory is that that names root themselves into our mental worlds, quote, drawing us magnetically towards the concepts they embody. If you're named farmer, in his uh, his theory, you could very well become a farmer because it's built into you. He has examples in his article. This really is a serious article, but the, the examples are kind of, I think, humorous. The 745 crowd did not laugh at all. No, no. Two prominent legal, legal minds in England have the last names of judge and law. Oh, man. How about, uh, how about Anna Smashanova, who is a professional tennis player? That's a little better, right? How about Daniel Snowman, who is a, 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 an author who wrote books about the Arctic and the Antarctica? Of course, there's the infamous Jamaican drug dealer named Christopher Coke. Or my personal favorite is A.J. Splatt, who's a doctor of urology. In his article, uh, the author, Professor Alter Wonders, Would Usain Bolt run more slowly with the name Usain Plod? Is it amusing amusing examples of, I think, what is a deep reality? We are, or who we are, leads to how we live. While our last names don't necessarily lead to our professions, we cannot help but live out our deepest and most real identity, even when we try to hide it. Who we truly are always expresses itself in action, so it's really critically important for us to know who we are. If you don't know who you are, you don't know where you are going. Peter, in his first letter, 1 Peter Ironically enough, his first letter is named 1 Peter. Peter deals with the issues of identity and living out of that identity repeatedly throughout the course of his his letter. And as we come to chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, we find once again Peter laying out the basic Christian identity, who we are. Who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I'll tell you right now, the identity of who we are in Jesus Christ ought to to be an encouragement. It ought to be humbling. It ought to be overwhelming. And it ought to lead to us proclaiming the glories of God. It ought to. And if it doesn't, then we need to check what we really think about who we are in Jesus. Because Peter lays it out in incredible terms. Who we are because and in and through and by of Jesus Christ. Let's go all the way back to Genesis to set this up. I know you're thinking, holy smokes, he was serious about a long attention span. But (laughs) Follow me here. Let's go all the way back to Genesis. God creates everything that is human sin. God sets about building his people. Genesis chapter 12, he calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my man, and I will bless you with, with a huge nation in order to bless other nations. So God does his work. We know the story. Uh, Abraham has a child by a miraculous conception to his wife, Uh, Sarah. And out comes Isaac. Isaac has two sons. One of those sons is Jacob. God narrows his call. The promise given to to, uh, Abraham, he narrows to Jacob. And he says to Jacob, I'm going to make you into a nation. Changes his name to Israel. And boom, what do you have? It God has a nation. Goes into Egypt for 400 years. God rescues them out of Egypt. He brings them into the promised land, having created a covenant with him, given them a land that he has essentially said, you obey me, I will bless you, and things will be peachy keen. The problem is we know what happens. They, they blow it. They mess up. And so God says, uh, eventually, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. You're going to go back into exile, but I will bring you out of exile, back to your land, and I will restore you. I will recreate you. I will make you a nation. And God says, I will take a stone, one that I have chosen that is precious and beautiful and perfect and true, and I will build my people upon this stone, it's a promise that God made through the prophet Isaiah well before Peter ever wrote his letter. And yet Peter sees the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in none other than Jesus Christ. As we see in 2 Peter, 1 Peter Chapter 2, Peter says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. This whole idea of a living stone that God, the creator, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, this whole idea of a living stone is found throughout the Old Testament where it is becoming the idea that he is bringing in a single individual around which, upon which, he will build a people. And Peter says by quoting Isaiah 28:16 for it stands in scripture behold I am laying in Zion a stone Peter is saying it's happening right now in Jesus It didn't happen before because Jesus, the living stone, hadn't yet come. But now, after his incarnation, his miraculous conception by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, his 33 years or so of life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, Jesus is that precious and chosen stone that has been laid down for the church to be built upon. And Peter says, God is doing that in your day, in your hearing. And he says today, God is doing that today in our hearing. Because of Jesus, you are living stones. And it's the way it's supposed to be because God preordained it, foreordained it, prophesied about it. Jesus, the living stone, a cornerstone, precious and chosen. Who cares if he was rejected by men? He was chosen by God. And that's the way it was supposed to be. God declared that he would select the cornerstone. God declared that he would bring about the creation of a new people, that he would create a new nation, that he would create this new building project all upon his chosen Messiah who was none the less than Jesus. The cornerstone is, I think, easily said to be the most important piece in a wall or in a building in the ancient world. The chosen cornerstone, whether we're talking about building a home or a business or a temple or a palace, the cornerstone was the largest and most solid stone, specifically chosen, specifically taken out, carefully cut, carefully prepared, and then placed into position with great care because it was the place where two walls would join. And providing uh, the, 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 the safe foundation for these two walls, it would literally hold the walls together. It would sustain the building, and it provided for the rest of the building the foundation square to be built off of. If in the ancient world your cornerstone was cracked, broken, or flawed, your building, I don't care how beautiful it was, your building would come down. And so for his church, Jesus is the foundation stone. He holds it together. He gives it meaning and purpose. He squares it. He is the one by which it is measured, and he holds it together in his power. The reason why the gates of hell do not overcome the church, as he says in Matthew chapter 16, is not because we're so great, but because he is. It's not because we hold hands and sing kumbaya, but because we have the precious living stone who was crucified and raised, ascended into glory, and sits at the right hand of the Father and keeps it together. You want to know who you are, you've got to first know who Jesus is, and Jesus is the living stone. And about Jesus, St. Peter doesn't pull his punches. He does not equivocate, he doesn't use ambiguous language, he doesn't waffle, he doesn't say, well, if you feel like it, you might want to think about accepting Jesus as your personal savior, but only if you think about it or feel like it. Otherwise, it's all okay, all the roads lead up the same mountain. He doesn't go in for that postmodern mumbo-jumbo. It's a bunch of hippy-dippy baloney. (laughs) Sorry. My my daughter's Legos movie creeped in on me right there. (laughs) Relying upon the prophecy of Isaiah again, Peter clearly states that when it comes to Jesus, the cornerstone, there are only two possible outcomes. You either are built upon him or you are stumbling over him. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14 in chapter 2 of his letter. A stone of stumbling, the cornerstone is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Jesus is offensive. More than that, the exclusive claim that in Jesus alone is their life, access to God, reconciliation to God, it is offensive. It was offensive in Peter's day, it was offensive in Jesus' day, and it's offensive in our own day. And so the preaching, the teaching, the proclamation, the trust that that Jesus alone is the way of salvation will offend. But you know what? I'm offended by coconuts, mosquitoes, and the New York Yankees. (laughs) And just because something offends me personally doesn't mean it's not true. I know there are people who like coconut, I don't know why, it's like having a cat hair stuck in your mouth. (laughs) But it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. The New York Yankees are the most despised baseball team in all of the major leagues in my thinking, and they should be rightfully so, but they still won 51 World Series. I can't change that. Southern author Flannery O'Connor once said that our ability to stomach the truth does not make it less true. And so Jesus is offensive. And people will stumble over him. And in some ways, you and I, we have a job to do, which is proclaim the gospel. Peter puts it a little bit differently, which we'll see in just a second. We have a job to do, but in a very real sense, our obligation to other people ends when we've done our job. And we leave God and his sovereignty to do the work of transforming hearts and minds. Does that make sense? So, yes, Jesus may be an offense, but how do you respond? And how do you proclaim his excellencies? There is no middle ground. If one accepts Jesus, they're built upon him. If one rejects Jesus, then they disobey the word of God. They stumble and fall. Everything comes back to Jesus. Whether we trust in him as the living stone, the Messiah promised by God upon which he builds his people or whether we reject him. Even, even renowned atheist Christopher Hitchens knew that Christianity was all about Jesus. In an interview, he said this, I would say if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not really in any meaningful sense a Christian. It matters for our identity, for who we are, for how we live. Jesus is literally a matter of life and death. It matters for salvation. And for those who respond to Jesus with faith, their identity is built upon him. Look with me. If you have your Bibles or uh, however you read your Bible, whatever you've got with you this morning, I hope you have your Bible, uh, open it up. We're at... 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Those who believe in Jesus receive their identity from Jesus as they are built upon him, the living stone. You yourselves, Peter writes, like living stones are being built up. Let's just pause for a minute. Notice that Peter has just said Jesus is the living stone rejected by men. And in the very next verse, I think this is the passage from which Mitch took that amazing song that we sang this morning. Look what he says. You yourselves, like living stones... There's a connection between the one who is saved and the one who has done the saving. There is an imputation of of righteousness and in a very real sense of identity, this free gift given from Jesus to those who trust in him so that those who trust in him are also called like living stones. And like living stones, then, we ought to assume that our life will be like the life of the living stone, which means chosen and precious but rejected by men. I don't think that this means that, that, that the believers in Jesus as living stones are somehow not chosen and precious in God's eyes. Just the opposite, in fact. That being a living stone, coming to the one who is the living stone, reveals that we are chosen and precious in God's eyes. And that is an amazing truth. Because this world will tell you, you are so many different things, but God simply wants you to know that in Jesus, you are chosen and precious. This world will tell you that you are your pants size. That you are, uh, if you don't fit this this picture of what uh, humanity and health looks like, then you're somehow less than. This world will tell you if you don't earn this amount of money, you are somehow less than. If you don't get this degree, go to this college, achieve this, sleep with this many people, identify yourself in this way that you are somehow less than. God says, you are never less than my chosen and my precious through Jesus Christ. And that ought to encourage us. It ought to. Junior high and high school suck. (laughs) And part of it is simply because we are so hammered upon what we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to be identified. And Jesus says, you are my child, chosen and precious. That's just an aside. Living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, Peter is not addressing individuals, he's addressing communities. And as we as individuals come to Jesus, trust in Jesus, we are built upon Jesus into a temple for God. That's what this new spiritual house is. Each believer in Jesus is a living stone, but they are together being built into a spiritual house, a new temple where God dwells. Paul uses the metaphor of a body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to communicate very much the same thing. Together as a whole, believers in Jesus are placed within this metaphor, within this spiritual reality, stone by stone, exactly where God wants them to be upon and based around, measured by, squared by, supported by, and strengthened by Jesus, the cornerstone, into a spiritual temple. The spiritual temple is the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. And God dwells in his people by the power of his Holy Spirit and creates from his people a holy priesthood to mediate him and his message to the world. And I do believe to intercede with God on behalf of a fallen world. Because of Jesus, those who believe in him have a new identity as a living stone within a new temple, given a new role as part of the holy priesthood, representing God to the world, and with a new purpose, the offering of spiritual sacrifices. And before we think that we're, we, get off the, uh, we get off easy with this bit about offering spiritual sacrifices, it's more than what we do on a Sunday morning. Offering spiritual sacrifices goes beyond our times of praise and worship. It actually incorporates every aspect of our behavior that is transformed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. The totality of our identity is different because of Jesus. The totality of our lives become an offering given back to God who gave us life. There's an amazing, an amazing philosopher and poet. His name is Propaganda. And he says in in, in one of his his sort of spoken word things is that, that God breathed out his breath, giving us life. And in a sense, God wants us to give his breath back by trusting him, by coming to him, by being filled with newness, by being renewed. And this, this is an honor. I don't care what the world says. Peter doesn't care what the world says. Being a living stone built upon Jesus, the living stone, being marked out as different, as weird, being counted as precious and chosen in God's sight because of Jesus is the honor for you who believe. Peter says this in 1 in Peter chapter 2, verse 7. You don't take my word for it? Look at it. You got your Bible open. So the honor is for you who believe. In God's way of doing things, there's this great reversal. Those who respond to Jesus with trust receive unimaginable honor as they are giving this new identity and built upon Jesus, even while they may be shamed in the eyes of the world around them. In the first century, in Peter's world, conversion to Christianity brought a loss of cultural honor to those who believed. Because they lost positive social standing, because they lost reputation, because they lost status. Those who believed in Jesus turned their back on the beliefs, the priorities, and the customs and values of the world around them, and thus they've been shamed by the culture. And by the way, this doesn't just happen in the first century, it happens now. Any Muslim man or woman who comes to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is treated very much the same way. And if they can escape with their lives, they are literally cut off from their family and culture. But God says in his way of doing things, what may look like shame and defeat is actually a sign of honor and glory. In God's way of doing things, those who reject Jesus are those who are shamed. And Peter quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, which he undoubtedly heard Jesus use as Jesus told that parable of the tenants that we read from in Mark 12. In that parable, Jesus explains that rejecting him, the Son, the living stone, means in turn the greatest shame being received, which is rejection by God. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus' implication is quite clear. Who are the others? The others are the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the sinners that he talked with and who received the kingdom. Who are the others? In 1 Peter's Context. The others are those elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Who are the others who receive the vineyard? Those who trust in Jesus and are built upon the living stone. Responding to Jesus with faith changes everything. Sins are forgiven as people. Men and women, boys and girls, are ransomed out of their formal, futile, and ignorant ways. They are adopted into God's family. They are made exiles. But they are given a new identity. Not because they've done a thing to earn it. Not because they've risen to a level of acceptance before God that merits his favor. But simply because God promised to create a new people. He sent Jesus to do the work of creating a new people. And he graciously builds those who believe. Who are you? Living stones. Chosen. Precious. An identity based upon Jesus, the cornerstone. Believers themselves are living stones being built together into a new temple. A new locus of praise. A new locus of mediation of God's presence to the world. With an identity based upon Jesus, believers in Jesus are a new people. Look at chapter 2 verse 8. I'm going to pick up with just the second half of chapter 2 verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter contrasts here in chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. He contrasts those who reject Jesus with those who accept him. Those who reject Jesus stumble over the cornerstone. They disobey the word, and God knew that they would. But, chapter 2, verse 9, Peter's big but, but not so for believers. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter contrasts those who reject Jesus and those who accept In Exodus chapter 19, these terms that Peter uses to describe the new people in Jesus are used to describe the people of Israel in the covenant that God makes with them. In Exodus chapter 19, God has delivered the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. He has ransomed them under the cover of blood. He has brought them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and to the foot of Mount Sinai. And there, Moses went up to meet God. And God declared the terms of his covenant, his loving relationship with his people of Israel. If they obeyed him, if they obeyed his covenant then they would be among all the nations his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests mediating his presence to the world, his holy nation set apart and different from the world. And the promise made to Israel in Exodus chapter 19 foreshadowed God's new building project through Jesus. It, it pointed toward a time in which God's chosen people would be a collection of folks from all races, from all nations, from all tribes, from all languages from all people groups, formed into a new race, a holy nation, because of Jesus. Once you were not a people, and now you are God's people. Chosen by God, this idea of an elect exile, ransomed by Jesus, to mediate his presence to the unbelieving world, to be set apart, to be unified as holy people, reflecting the Father, a people of God's own possession. Who are you? You're not your own. You're God's. Who are you? You may be a rock head, but in Jesus you are chosen and precious, a living stone. You see what I did there? How great this grace. How marvelous this wonder that God would make for himself, his own people through Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And this is who we are today. If you believe in Jesus, you are a part of God's special and treasured possession. If you believe in Jesus, you are a part of God's chosen race, a member of a multinational, multiethnic, multiracial, multilanguage nation that spreads across time and space. And not because you deserve it, but because in His grace and through Jesus, God called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Not a people, now a people. Not deserving mercy or not receiving mercy, now receiving mercy. Because of Jesus, because of grace, because of faith, now a people. In this beautiful allusion to the prophet Hosea, Peter brings the great reversal more into focus. We were once distant, wandering in the darkness of our ignorance and futility split apart from God and God's people, but now believers in Jesus have been brought in God's great light, forgiven and made new, brought home. How great this grace. How marvelous this wonder. Is it any surprise then, reflecting back on the great honor, the glory that God in his grace, has done for us. Is it any surprise then that Peter expects those who are made new in Jesus to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? The new people of God's creation in Jesus Christ have a purpose. And that purpose is to proclaim him, to proclaim his glory, to proclaim the gospel. Because of what God has done for us, at the very least, we ought to talk about Jesus at least as much as we talk about our preferred presidential candidate. Our Facebook posts ought to reflect Jesus, at the very least, as much as they reflect how we're going to vote in the upcoming election. I, I don't care who you're voting for because neither one of them have called you out of darkness and into his, his light. At the very least, we ought to talk about Jesus as much as we talk about our favorite or not-so-favorite celebrities. At the very least, we ought to talk about Jesus as much as we talk about our favorite movies or our favorite food or our favorite football team.